Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is Galatians 6, verses 1 to 5. So welcome, dear friends. And in the event that you're relatively new here or visiting this morning, then I'll simply say that Galatians has been our course of study for many months now. Many wonderful months, I say. But we come now to the final month and the final chapter. And today we cover these first five verses of chapter 6. And the main point of these verses is the command in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, by this point of Galatians, we're supposed to be ready to hear that. Though it's somewhat shocking how many commentators seem genuinely puzzled by this verse. I think that we're to understand that this is what the Christian life is about. We are to fulfill the law of Christ. Now look back at with, with me, if you would, if you have your Bibles open there to Galatians. Let's look back briefly just to a few places as we work our way back after a couple weeks off. It's a rainy morning. We have to be reminded of what we've seen. So first, flip back to Galatians 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. Then listen. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we've seen now how when we experience the reality of the cross in our lives, when we are crucified with Christ, notice what happens. That there's two ways to say it, right? In Galatians 2 verse 20. On the one hand, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Then on the other hand, the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. Now, do you hear that? It's crucial, even for our passage in Galatians 6. It is as Christ lives in me that, in fact, I live by faith. Do you see that? You recall how we talked about the phrase Christ living in me as a way of saying that the Spirit lives in me. It's the Spirit of Christ. So you could say the Spirit lives in me, the Spirit of Christ lives in me, and I live by faith, and you are saying the same thing. Got it? So there's this basic teaching in Galatians, and we've seen it again and again, and it's encapsulated there in 2 verse 20, that our lives as Christians... The lives we live are the outworking of two things that always go together. The cross plus the Spirit as realities in our lives. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's the cross. The cross at work as we're forgiven of our sin and set free from the power of sin. And then it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Spirit. The Spirit of Christ living in, dwelling in us, so that Paul can then finally talk about the life I live by faith. So that when the cross and the Spirit are in your life, what happens? You live by faith. Huge central pillar of Galatians, faith, right? It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. But now look it. According to Galatians, just what does living by faith look like? I mean, that's the $60,000 question, right? What does living by faith look like? And we've seen lots of ways to talk about that in Galatians. Here's Today's way, in chapter 6, verse 2, it looks like fulfilling the law of Christ. Which, now, I submit to you, and again, I'm just doing this for the sake of reminding us where we've been, I submit to you is nothing more and nothing different than what Paul's already said in other ways in Galatians. So, Moving on from chapter 2, verse 20, you could go to chapter 3, verse 5, and Paul makes clear there, we've read it almost every Sunday, that the Galatians have the Spirit because they have the hearing of faith, he says. The cross plus the Spirit are realities in their lives. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then they... When they, and then when we have the Spirit, what happens? Skipping over a whole lot in Galatians 3 and 4, this is where we've been now most recently in Galatians 5, right? What happens when you have the Spirit? When you're living by faith? I don't mean skipping 3 and 4 in terms of content. We dealt with all of it, but I just mean I don't have time. So 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. How does that work? Well, look at 5, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith. Notice the connection again. Through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly ourselves wait for the hope of righteousness. And what does that waiting look like? Remember, not passive. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. And then with love front and center in our thinking, we come to the end of verse 13 of chapter 5. But through love serve one another, Paul says to them. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just in case everything I just said didn't make it clear or it hasn't been clear already, can I just... I mean, where does this love, where does this love, which is the fulfillment of the law, come from? Or, I could ask the same thing this way, how do you live by faith? It comes from the Spirit comes from the Spirit, of course. It's through the Spirit that we produce the fruit of love. 
chapter 5, verse 22, three weeks ago. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is through the Spirit that we have, it is through the Spirit we, we have because we have the hearing of faith. This is the life of faith, the end of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, I mean, can you just put together the phrases, I live by faith and we live by the Spirit. You have to read those as synonymous. It is the life of faith. Then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So when we come to chapter 6, verse 2, you can't read it apart from all of that background. At least I hope you won't. Paul is saying that through love, we fulfill the law of Christ. And I would suggest to you that it's the same law that we're talking about here as we've always been talking about in Galatians. It's the law. It's the law of Moses as it's been embodied in the life and teaching of Jesus. It's the law of love. It's the law we fulfill. It's the law written on our hearts by the Spirit in the New Covenant. It's what the life of faith looks like. And it's what the Galatians need to get and grasp and live because it's what happens when the cross and the Spirit are realities in our lives. We fulfill the law of Christ. Let me try and put it this way. Through faith, God supplies the Spirit of Christ. Through the Spirit, we produce the fruit of love. And through love, we fulfill the law. By faith, God supplies the Spirit. By the Spirit, we produce love. By love, we fulfill the law. This is the thought of Galatians. I don't see how Galatians could be any clearer. If you trust him, you will fulfill the law. Brothers and sisters, you need to be circumcised. Don't you see there's some profoundly better reality at work in you, Galatians? He refers to it now in this text as the law of Christ because I think he's pointing out that it's Christ that makes this whole thing possible. That's my interpretation of a very controversial phrase. The only time Paul uses that phrase, the law of Christ. I think it's because it's Christ who makes the whole thing possible. He's made it possible for you to fulfill it by dying on the cross and pouring out his spirit. Or... As Paul put it in chapter 3, verse 13 of Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Notice he doesn't say Christ redeemed us from the law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith, i.e., the Spirit who produces the love that fulfills the law. There you go. That's my best try. That's, that's, that's all I've got, friends. That's my best shot at trying to summarize what Paul's been doing in this book for months as we've been laboring through it. And I mean, okay then, so that's the theological backdrop, and I hope that not a lot of that sounds very new to you. 
you've been with us. This, this backdrop that we've spent months on. It's just the mini summary of it. So now comes the test. Right? What is that love that fulfills the law, that is a fruit of the Spirit, that you receive by faith? What does that look like? What does it look like? What's the main thing that a Spirit-led community does? I mean, welcome to Galatians 6. This is where Paul's at now. He's established all of what I just tried to say. What does it look like? It's verse 2. We bear one another's burdens. We bear one another's burdens. That's the main point. And, and of course, the first thing to say is this, that you and I tend to think of burdens as things like sickness or unemployment or loss of a loved one or loneliness or rejection or many other things and on and on, right? And those things certainly are burdens. We're certainly commanded in Scripture in many places to bear such burdens in love with one another. But according to this text, there's another kind of burden, isn't there, that we're to bear. And I, I would suggest that this kind is perhaps primary. Because I would suggest to you that this is a burden that in fact is more harmful to a person than any of those other burdens, which are serious, that I just listed. It is the spiritual burden of sin. That's where Paul goes here. Look at verse 1. Brothers and sisters. Verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Spiritual restoration. It's what love looks like. Now, a few comments on that verse, that word restore in verse 1. It just means to make things right. It's, it's a word that can be used for repairing things, like torn fishing nets elsewhere. And Paul's point is that sin in the body of Christ has to be repaired. Sin damages the sinner's relationship with the Lord. Sin harms the whole body of Christ. Sin is dangerous. Sin is damaging. Sin cannot be ignored, Paul says. Hear that. We'll come back to that point. It cannot be ignored. Paul says it's those who are spiritual who should restore the ones who sin. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a job only for the super-Christians. For the really spiritual ones, right? No, that would be to miss the whole point of Galatians, which is that by faith you have the Spirit. You're filled with and empowered by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, you are spiritual, Galatians. You are filled by the Spirit. This is what normal Spirit-filled Christianity looks like. Can I say that again? This is what normal Spirit-filled Christianity looks like. And you notice there the explicit link in verse 1 with chapter 5, verse 22. Gentleness. Right? 
you who are spiritual, that is, you who have the spirit, should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. It's a fruit of the spirit. Chapter 5, verse 22, this whole thing is to be done by the power of the Spirit. This is the outworking of what it means to serve one another, to love one another, to fulfill the whole law, to fulfill the law of Christ. It's doing what it takes to restore a person gently to good running condition, right? Running the way of his commandments from Psalm 119 as we considered a few weeks ago, it means gently identifying sin. It means gently leading to repentance. It means gently helping, I think, probably even to deal with the consequences of that sin or to come alongside as those consequences come, whatever those might be. This is what Paul says it means to bear one another's burdens. This is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ, to love empowered by the Spirit living by faith. So let me ask you this. Why is this so rare? I mean, from my perspective at least, why, maybe I'm wrong, but from my perspective, why is this so rare rare, rare. <laughs> as in it doesn't happen very often at least it seems to me that it is rare maybe you don't think it is and you should tell me that after the sermon is over but I'd be glad to hear you say that if you feel it isn't but it seems to me that it's it's much more common in the church to just keep to ourselves when it comes to sin in someone else's life in the body. I mean, do you? I don't know if you agree with that, but that's my perception. Why? Why is that? Well, probably there, there could be a few right answers to that. One that I think of is that we don't really know one another well enough in the body of Christ that we're afraid of being known sometimes. Maybe because we haven't experienced this gentleness of love of which Paul speaks when others have found out our sin in the past, and so now we're guarded big time. I mean, we've, we've experienced the opposite of what Paul's describing. We don't let ourselves be known, or for whatever reason, maybe we just present certain parts of ourselves, or we simply don't invest in relationships in the body. We just choose to spend all our energy and time elsewhere all week, so how could our brothers and sisters even know when sin is present? Those are all very real possibilities. That's not what Paul's addressing in Galatians, I don't think, but I think those things and other answers are true and they, they plague us in the modern church. But here's another reason that may seem counterintuitive at first, but I think it is where Paul's going in verses 1 to 5. Because you see the rest of verse 1? Look at verse 1. Paul says, You who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness, then, he says, keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. What's that warning about? 
Now, I mean, it could be a warning not to be tempted by the same sin as the person whom you hope to restore. Certainly possible. Could be a warning not to be tempted to anger in response to sin. Maybe this is sin that's harmed you directly in some way. It's a warning not to be angry, which would be the exact opposite of gentleness in our response. That's another good possibility, what Paul could mean there. But here's one more. And as I'm reading the text, it's, it's the way I'm suggesting to you this might fit together. What if Paul means this? What if he means keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted not to restore your brother or sister when they've fallen? Lest you be tempted not to restore your brother or sister when they have fallen. I mean, is that possible? I think so, because I think maybe that's why Paul follows verse 1 with verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, because perhaps that's what we don't always want to do when we encounter transgression. Possible? And maybe the reason we don't want to do that sometimes as I'm trying to read verses 1 to 5 here, is that we're actually battling a certain kind of pride. And so we're tempted not to deal with sin. Why? Well, maybe it's because we imagine subtly it leaves us in a slightly better position. Do you think that's possible? that it's possible to be too proud or preoccupied with ourselves, that maybe we don't want to take the time, or maybe we don't even notice it, or maybe maybe we're tempted to just let that other person stay in their sin for a while. Maybe we're tempted just to boast a little bit over others over others who are overtaken in sin. Not that we would intend to do that, I trust, but sin is subtle, pride is powerful, and maybe our hearts just have a hard time bending low enough to carry other people's burdens. I think that might be what Paul's warning them about. Because look at verse 3. Because verse 3 follows verse 2 with the word for. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Paul says in verse 2. And then verse 3, here's the reason why that's what you should do. Ready? For. Do that. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Or in other words, if you discover sin in a brother or a sister, what's your response? What if, rather than grieving over another's sin, we subtly start to rebel in realizing we, we have a leg up on someone? Do you see how this is not like Jesus? What if we're tempted to be like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable was towards the, the tax collector? Remember that? Luke 18. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, is there a temptation 
to posture ourselves before God relative to others? Can you identify with that? So if in response to sin in someone else you have a thought like, oh, that's too bad. But wow, I'm not like him. Not like her. That's deadly. That is literally deadly. It's pride, dear friends, and you could see perhaps how a certain proudness would mean that when someone is caught in a transgression, you don't come alongside. Or you don't come alongside gently. Maybe you do come, but maybe you're not gentle. That'd be another way of reacting to it. And instead of privately and kindly and gently exposing sin, you become the judge. That's not what Paul wants either. Jesus knows we easily deceive ourselves into thinking we're something we're not. We fail to see what we truly are. Here's Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own? So maybe you do come when you, you see sin in the community, but it's all wrong. You're not gentle. You're not humble. Rather, you're proud and judgmental and arrogant and positioning. But that may be. But maybe, and I tend to think this is more common, at least in the circles I've been in in recent years, I think it's more common that you just don't come alongside at all. And we think it's because we're being humble. But really, perhaps, perhaps it's because there's, there's a fear there. And it's a fear of man that's probably rooted somewhere in pride. Because maybe what we're actually concerned more with we're concerned with what that person or what others might think about us if we're to speak with them about sin. More concerned about that than we are for them in their sin and its consequences in their lives and in the body. But that's not loving, Paul says. It is not loving to let your brother or sister stay in sin. If Paul's preaching about the life of faith resonates at all with us, we understand why that is so. Paul stresses for the Galatians and for us that God in Christ by the Spirit has in fact entered your lives and enabled you to love. And in that case, whose great example of love and burden bearing, bear, bar, sorry, sorry, burden bearing, whose example of that are we following? Jesus. I mean, we follow Jesus himself in this, right? It is, after all, the law of Christ that we fulfill. Bearing one another's burdens is the way of Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we're not Jesus. We don't atone for the sin of someone else. But we should at least ask Will the fact that you approach and the way that you approach others caught in sin remind them of Jesus? Remind them of him and what he has done? 
to atone for and forgive and restore us all to right relationship with God, I, I submit to you that when you look to Christ for your forgiveness, you depend on the Spirit, you live by faith, the fruit of the Spirit's in your life, then the sinner that you seek to restore because you love him or you love her, he or she will know that you are not coming in the spirit of pride, but of gentle love. Because you will remind them of Jesus. Friends, can I say that I want others to do this for me? Please, would you do that? Would you, as some of you have, would you gently confront me in my sin and comfort me in the trouble that it has engendered? I want us, Paul wants the Galatians, I want us to be a church in which we love one another so much that we can't look the other way. When a sister or a brother goes down a path of sin, we can't. Rather, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And in fact, brothers and sisters, in closing, I would remind us, as Paul also reminds the Galatians, that that is in fact the standard by which we'll be measured in the end. We need to turn to verses 4 and 5 as we close. But Paul says, verse 4, he just said, don't think of yourself as something compared to others, and so not respond in love the way you ought. Verse 5, but let each one test his own work, and then his reasons to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For, he says, each will have to bear his own load. Now look at verse 4. In the context of verses 1 to 5 here, what's the standard we're using for this test? What's the test? What are we checking? The test of how we live. The test of what we're doing. Well, it's the law of Christ. It's perhaps easier to see what we're not using, that we're not using the works of others as a comparison, right? Because if pride has deep roots in us, then the most natural thing to do is to measure how we're doing in relation to those around us. It's like chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, positioning yourself relative to one another. How do we test our own work to see how we're doing in all of this you look only one place. You look to Jesus. We take stock of our lives. We ask, am I fulfilling the law of Christ? Am I learning to love? Am I bearing the burdens of others? And if I am, then indeed I may boast looking only to my own life, not comparing myself with others. But not, of course, meaning that I may boast of what I've done in my own strength. Paul's going to say in just a few verses down in verse 14 of Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a test of whether you're getting Galatians at this point. How can Paul say both of those things? How can Paul say the reason for boasting is only in ourselves? 
and far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to put those two statements together, and then you've really understood what Paul's telling the Galatians. Because you see, it's the same thing as where we started in Galatians 2, verse 20. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So then it's the life I live by faith. It's the cross and its subsequent effect in our lives that is the work of God clearly seen through us. It's Christ living in us as we live by faith. Paul says, is it real? Is it in your life? Test yourselves. It will never be about playing the comparison game with others before God. Because Paul says here and elsewhere that that kind of game is more than dangerous, it's deadly. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. This is how one should regard us, Paul says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Here's the key. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Why does Paul care that they fulfill the law of Christ? Because in the end, dear friends, what is it that the Lord's looking for in our lives? That we sinned less than someone else? No. No, says Paul in verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. It's not the same word as burden in verse 2. What load is this that you have to bear? Whether or not you fulfill the law of Christ. Which is to say... Whether or not we bore one another's burdens in a spirit of gentleness. Which is to say, whether or not the fruit of the Spirit was evident. Which is to say, whether or not we loved one another. Which is to say, whether or not we had faith. You see, the kind of faith that works through love which, according to Paul, is the only thing that matters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.